You're listening to the Plain Label Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Plain Label Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Williams, and today we are discussing the first uh, the first non-Gore Verbinski-directed film in the Pirates series, Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. Here to discuss the film with me once again is returning guest, Mr. Sean Stangland. A vast ye mateys. <laughs> Before getting into our discussion, I would like to mention that this podcast is brought to you by the Deliberate Noise Network. Head over to DeliberateNoise.com and check out some of the other shows that are over there. And we are also sponsored by Audible. For you, the listeners of the Plain Label Podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to check them out. For this episode, our Audible recommendation is, once again, this is for Sean, it is called (laughs) Disney War. It is written by James B. Stewart, not Jimmy Stewart. This audiobook was narrated by Patrick Lawler. It is 25 hours long. It retails for almost $40, but it could be yours for free. And the summary of the book goes like this. The dramatic inside story of the downfall of Michael Eisner, Disney chairman and CEO, and the scandals that drove America's best-known entertainment company to civil war. When you wish upon a star, whistle while you work, the happiest place on earth. These are lyrics indelibly linked to Disney, one of the most admired and best-known companies in the world. So when Roy Disney, chairman of Walt Disney Animation and nephew of founder Walt Disney, abruptly resigned in November of 2003 and declared war on chairman and chief executive Michael Eisner, he sent shockwaves through the entertainment industry, corporate boardrooms, theme parks, and living rooms around the world. Everywhere Disney does business and its products are cherished. Drawing upon unprecedented access to both Eisner and Roy Disney, current and former Disney executives and board members, as well as thousands of pages of never-before-seen letters, memos, transcripts, and other documents, James B. Stewart gets to the bottom of mysteries that have enveloped Disney for years. What really caused the rupture was studio chairman Jeffrey Katzenberg, a man who once regarded Eisner as a father, but who became his fiercest rival. How could Eisner have so misjudged Michael Ovitz, a man who was not only the, quote, most powerful man in Hollywood, but also his friend, whom he appointed as Disney president and immediately wanted to fire? What caused the break between Eisner and Pixar chairman Steve Jobs, and why did Pixar abruptly abandon its partnership with Disney? Why did Eisner so mistrust Roy Disney that he assigned Disney company executive to spy on him? How did Eisner control the Disney board for so long? And what really happened in the fateful board meeting in September 2004 when Eisner played his last cards? Disney War is an enthralling tale of one of America's most powerful media and entertainment companies, the people who control it, and those trying to overthrow them. It tells a story that in its sudden twists, Vivid, larger-than-life characters and thrilling climax might itself have been the subject of a Disney classic, except that it's all true. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash plainlabel. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash plainlabel for your free audiobook. Let me take a breath, Mr. Stanglin, from reading all that. (laughs) Tell me what you think about uh, this Disney war. What What sort of answers do you already know about this book? Well, I attempted to read that book, and you I did? say attempted, yes, because <laughs> it it got to be a pretty famous book, just in general. But then all, within the Disney fan community, I mean, it was kind of like a must read. Mm-hmm. But you know, I just don't need to read 
all these corporate documents and squabbles between people who have more money than I can ever dream of having. <laughs> and, you know, I'm much more interested in, in what Eisner and, uh, Katzenberg and Frank Wells, who is the businessman of the, the trio, the three of them really revolutionized Disney as a studio in the late eighties and early nineties. I'm more interested in what they did to make, to restore Disney to what it once was. Mm. And you can see that in a 90 minute documentary called Waking Sleeping Beauty. I'll take that over the 40 hours <laughs> of <you> Disney <laughs> War. But you know, I should give it another go someday. Well, there you go. You can just have it on in the background. You can do, uh, you can walk <laughs> the dog and listen to Disney War for free. There you go. On us. So there you go. All right. So let's get into a little drink roll call. Since you just woke from a little nappy nap, are you having uh, some coffee or what are you having to drink? Oh, no, no, no. I am having the Chauffeur Hofer Grapefruit Rattler. So nice. Chauffeur Hofer. I like that. Yes. It's a, it's, you know, it's a grapefruit Rattler, so it's low in alcohol. But this was um, a drink that I ended up having on my vacation to guess where a couple weeks ago. Um, I had it at the German Germany Pavilion at Epcot a couple times on hot Florida days. Mm. That's a that's a, a fine beer. It's not hot here in Chicago today, but hey, uh, it still tastes good. They had it at the Germany Pavilion. They had it at our hotel bar, both of our hotel bars actually. So uh, it must be a popular option for the Disney bars to offer something that's lower in alcohol. Mm. There you go. I was going to say, if anyone was uh, paying attention to either your or your wife's social media accounts, they would have, <laughs> that would have been a rhetorical question as to where you were. Yes. Fairly recently. Uh, y- yes. My, my wife is very diligent about posting photographs <laughs> from, uh, all of her adventures, not only on vacation, but at the, the sanctuary farm that she volunteers at. So That's right. Well, you, you'll never get a lack of pictures of goats <laughs> or giant costumed characters on my wife's social media stream. I like it. You're always you're always up to date. That's right. That's the good stuff. So I am having something that you know. I went to the grocery store to find something that was somewhat related to this film because I was going <laughs> to find a beer and I wasn't going to do rum because rum was not great last time and so i was looking and i was like oh maybe i'll be able to find like a some kind of a blackberry something or even Mm -hmm. like a blueberry for you know blackbeard and bluebeard is sort of close kind of i was like (laughs) they're both famous pirates maybe i can work that in and i didn't really find anything super close but i found something it is from uh King Cater Brewing Company, which is from Broken Bow, Nebraska, which is out kind of in the panhandle of Nebraska. And it is called Frame the Butcher India <laughs> Pale Ale. And it, its little description goes like this. King Cater Well pulls up glorious Nebraska Sand Hills water. We merge that with the perfect blend of hops to give Frame the Butcher IPA a fresh aroma and a bright taste. So this is Solomon D. Butcher, who I don't know who that is, but it kind of looks like Ian McShane McShane a little bit. (laughs) And so I was like, well, he's got kind of the beard. He's got kind of some receding hair. I was like, ah, well, we'll just call that close enough. Is he calling people cocksuckers? Oh, wait, that's that's a different production. That's not in Pirates of the Caribbean. Never mind. It's much more adult. (laughs) Deadwood meets Pirates of the Caribbean. That would have been something. (laughs) So, uh, so that's what we're having to drink. 
And I think we are ready to begin our discussion of the film Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. Death lies before us as we sail to the fountain of youth. You could guide an expedition. You are Jack Sparrow. There should be a captain in there somewhere. I hear a rumor. Jack Sparrow's in London. Hellbent to find the fountain of youth. Don't be a fool, Jackie. The fountain will test you. Was that really necessary? Gentlemen. The fountain is the prize. Mermaid waters, that should be our path. Steady as she goes. What's your play, Jack? I thought I should give you a warning. We're taking the ship. It's nothing personal. You might be better off, you just... Stay out of it. There'll be dangers along the way. Firstly, mermaids. Zombies. Blackbeard. The pirate all pirates fear. If I do not make it to the fountain, neither will you. Is that it? I think so. It has begun again! Are we not King's men? How is it we can never meet without you pointing something at me? There's the Jack I know. Fight to the bitter end! You know that feeling you get when you're standing in a high place, sudden urge to jump? I don't have it. Did everyone see that? Because I will not be doing it again. And the IMDb plot synopsis goes like this. Captain Jack Sparrow crosses paths with a woman from his past, and he's not sure if it's love or if she's a ruthless con artist who's using him (laughs) to find the fabled fountain of youth. When she forces him aboard the Queen Anne's Revenge, the ship of the formidable pirate Blackbeard, Jack finds himself on an unexpected adventure in which he doesn't know who to fear more, Blackbeard or the woman from his past. And that was written by Walt Disney Studios. Really? Yes, sir. He doesn't know if it's love or a con job. I don't <laughs> yep. know. It just or made me laugh for some Walt reason. Walt Disney Pictures, I should say, not Walt wow. Disney. Yeah. So, if anyone's looking for, uh, you know, a copywriter, I would love to do that instead of <laughs> instead of what you had right there. <laughs> I, I have applied to be a copy editor. Before. Wait a minute. Well, let's edit that part out. Never mind. <laughs> I mean, you didn't hear that part. I nope. love my job. I I want to be at it forever. <laughs> I would like to retire here. <laughs> the newspaper business is notorious for its uh, its retirements. It's early yes. retirement. <laughs> yes, the, we did. The Chicago Tribune did not promote a bunch of people and then lay a bunch of people off this week. No, it again. did not. No, it did not. Uh, no, that never happened. No, nope. that doesn't happen in the newspaper business. Everything's going fine. That's right. It's just like everything in the teaching industry is perfect. There's no such thing as teacher shortages, which is true. <laughs> teacher jobs are a plenty. Like whoever wants one, you can just have it. It's 
And, I, and you know, and you got to get your uh, you got to get your firearm owner's identification card pretty soon, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm gonna just conceal and carry regardless of if I uh, am supposed to or not. Yeah. Because that would make me feel really safe in a room full of uh, eighth graders as having a gun. That's right. I would. <laughs> if I had a gun in my room, I would definitely use it, and it would probably be directed at myself, not at one of the kids. Because I'd be like, you know what? Fuck it. This is not working. Oh, my Lord. So, that's what sort of sense that makes to me. All right. Let's talk about the film. So this is if the first. We must. <laughs> if we must. This is the first uh, Gore Verbinski list film. And I wanted to bring that up at the beginning. And I wanted to bring it up first thing because I think he is sorely, sorely missed oh, in the God, director's yes. seat of this movie. So why don't you tell me about what you thought about on Stranger Tides the first time you saw it and with this revisit and then what you think. So it's a three-part question, which everyone loves. So tell me <laughs> finally what you think about Gore Verbinski versus Rob Marshall. Okay. Well, when when I first saw this in the theater, as happens with me very often when there's a movie that's part of a franchise I enjoy and I see it in the theater, I definitely talk myself into liking it more mm-hmm. than I probably actually do. I know so exactly I, what that's like. It's the theater going experience adds at least yes. like 10% enjoyment. Yeah, exactly. And I was very excited to see another pirates movie because I, as, as you've heard, I <laughs> fucking love the second and third movies of this series. Um, just so there's no and, confusion in case you're dropping into this podcast now yes, <laughs> on yes. the fourth one. Um, so, and then I remember getting it at home and sort of being bewildered by it. Like, why did I enjoy this? And I think part of it is that it just doesn't look very good mm. at home. Mm-hmm. There, a lot of it looks terrible, in fact. And I don't know whether I'm, whether to be blaming, um, Rob Marshall or the cinematographer or the Blu-ray transfer mm. or my Blu-ray player. But there are any, basically any, anything filmed at night in this movie that doesn't have torchlight on it looks awful. Mm. I mean, I, I, at least that's, I think so. There's a, uh, like the opening scene, there's this long stretch in the, in the encampments, like with the palm trees where Jack and Barbosa are, where you can't even see anything that's going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of scenes in this that are, uh, the only movie I can think of that's worse as far as how dark it is and how, muddy it is is the entirety of harry potter and the deathly hallows part two Mm. where the movie is so dark Uh that uh, you you have to turn the brightness up on your tv when it's on Mm. and someone i know someone i'm acquainted with on twitter i was talking about this on twitter one time so we're, I'm already going on a tangent. No, you're fine. So pardon me. No, no problem. S- straight up said, I know people involved with that production, and they absolutely made the movie darker on purpose to save money on digital effects. Mm. So if that's something that is actually done, I suspect that that was done also on this movie. Yeah, really. <laughs> and on Stranger Tides. Mm. Um, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that, that should work, but doesn't. And I don't know if it's because Rob Marshall doesn't, I can't pinpoint if it's a staging problem, if it's an editing problem, or if it's just a, it's the fourth movie in a series and we're tired of this problem. Mm. Mm-hmm. But this movie certainly doesn't have the spark that the Gore Verbinski ones has. Have. Sure. Sure. So 
this was the first watch for me. Well, this is like a, a one and a half times I've seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched it the first time, and I remember sending you uh, the definition of the word slog. <laughs> um, yes. It was, it was shortly after that where I fell asleep because I was watching this with my daughter. And she was like, oh, I tried uh, waking you up when there was exciting stuff happening and you just slept the whole time. (laughs) Okay. And so I watched it again yesterday and hmm, I (laughs) I think that I enjoyed it this time more than than how I was enjoying it uh, when I was watching with her. And I think that there are moments where the sort of, I don't know if I want to call it like the real Pirates of the Caribbean sort of seeps through, mm-hmm. or if it if it reminds me of the more successful versions. But mm-hmm. there are definitely some issues. And I think that part of it is, I and I never would have thought that I would be as someone that would say this, but I kind of missed Orlando Bloom and Kira Knightley. Yes. And part of it is, I think that... Um, Penelope Cruz like could not be bothered to be in this movie. She's awful. And I know that she was pregnant during <laughs> production and like all of the close-ups are her and the sort of medium and, and long shots are her sister. But mm. she is not she is not good in this. No. And I was really I was really surprised because I the first thing I remember seeing her in was Blow with Johnny Depp. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, okay, well those two have a good uh, had a good chemistry, so you know that should translate pretty well to this. Is kind of what I thought going into it. But then, also, I don't know. Uh, I don't know Rob Marshall's work that well. Um, but I felt like this had either a directing problem or an editing problem because yep. there was so much either fat to each of the cuts. Or there was so much just sort of lifeless performance that mm. was going on. Yep. And I think that where it struck me first was I, th- first of all, I thought that the setup and the whole character introductions, like I was okay with that sort of stuff when we have the, you know, when Johnny Depp's pretending to be the judge and that kind of stuff. I'm like, oh, okay, this is sort of similar to this sort of stuff and it's kind of playful. And I was okay with it. And we have the, you know, we have the pirate that uh, sells them out because, you know, that's what pirates do is they just take <laughs> all of the money. And I was like, that makes sense. And he's going to meet the king. And it was that first king's dinner escape thing thing that just felt like it was it was like a first go. It was like, we're going to do this yep. one at about three quarter speed just to make sure we got all everything's framed right and staged right. <laughs> but we're going to, you know, we're going to do another one. And they just did the one. And we're like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's just let's just go with that. Because it just feels like it's at about a quarter or half speed to me. Yes. And what I really noticed about that sequence watching it yesterday is that Hans Zimmer is working overtime. Oh yeah. He's... In that, and I think he does it all through the movie where, and it's, and it, it hurts the movie where it's all pumped up. It's all this hugely percussive stuff that's a lot of it taken right out of the first movie which was a score that was completed hastily at the last minute when they fired Alan Silvestri. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's like, well, so you're repeating material that was hastily written in the first place. And now you're trying, you're overdoing it to pump up these action scenes that are just lifeless. Yes. 
Yes. So yeah. <laughs> well, because that's I noted I noted that too that that it seemed like the it was a little bit of score to replace the feeling that we were supposed to have, but yes. we knew were was not on screen. Exactly. And I, I felt like the poor editor was in there like, oh fuck. Like can we just like <laughs> amp can we just give me a little bit more of the score because there's nothing on on the film. Yeah. You can kind of tell to me, as soon as Jeffrey Rush shows up, he doesn't you can tell Jeffrey Rush does not want to be in this movie. Yeah, he does seem a little bit more bored. I got once once he was toward the end and him and McShane were together. Uh huh. I was like, OK, like this is a little bit more. They're having a little bit of fun here in the sort of third act bit. Uh-huh. But but yeah, at the beginning when he's, you know, powdered wig and he's eating his little stuff on the ship and he's like doing the rallying cry, which that crew went from being like against him to with him in about five seconds. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, somebody is just trying to like just speed along. Like we're just mm-hmm. trying to like, you know what? We get it. They were against you and now they're with you. And we understand that the Spanish doesn't even want anything to do with you and we're just going to breeze by this as quick as we can. It should be noted that this is the, uh, at the time, it was the second shortest of the Pirates films, which and, it's still two, and it's like still 220, right? Or 215, something like that. It's 217. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So I don't know. I felt like they were trying to like hurry things along a little bit, but it was, it just didn't feel right. It didn't feel like the, script had anything really that interesting going on because we open up and we have this um we have this whole fountain of youth and we have the the spanish being introduced and we have this dude who's kind of like a spanish orlando bloom and he's got this deep (laughs) v shirt and i'm like oh okay this is going to be like the spanish bad guy and it's going to be you know him and Ian McShane and Barbosa and all three of them are going to be coming after Jack for some reason, you know, and I, I sort mm-hmm. of dream that up just by either the, the cover of the, or the movie poster. And then what I see in the first five minutes and that guy has like nothing to do in the movie. <laughs> like yeah. he's not even in the movie. And I was like, wait like, a I'm minute. Not, I mean, I just watched the thing last night. I'm not entirely sure why the Spanish fleet is even in the movie. Yeah, it has no purpose. That has to be something that's in the script to where they're just like, you know what? We're not going to film. We're not even filming it. Well, yeah, and this movie, the stated goal of this movie, as I remember it, was we, we want to pair it back so that it's more about Jack and there's more, and it's, it's just Jack Sparrow's adventure. Mm hmm. If and it, and it's a little less that. expensive, right? <laughs> well, yeah. Because I saw that they, they wanted to, because the, the third one was 300 million. They were only using 200 million on this one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, is that all? That's it. And it's like, if they had actually done that, there's, there's like a 95 minute movie in here. Mm-hmm. I think that could have been pretty good. Mm-hmm. But then you bog it down with Sam Claffin and Astrid Burgess Frisbee. I think that's her name. It's a ridiculous name. <laughs> Those characters, why are they in the movie? I don't know. It's like, oh, well, we wanted to make this Jack Sparrow movie without Elizabeth and Will, but let's force in like the lamest versions possible of, of Elizabeth and Will more than halfway into the movie. Uh, yes. Like, yes, and yes. Ju- it just, the last 40 minutes of this movie, feel like they take about three hours <laughs> and it is very simple like the the 
the uh, construction of this movie is very similar to the first one too, because mm-hmm. <laughs> it even has where they revisit like like the same. You know, the first movie, the like big the problem. Like the same set is what yeah. it seems like well, at the end. <laughs> the big problem with me for the first movie is where they go to, like, the cave with the Aztec gold, and you think that that's the end of the movie, yeah. and then it goes on for 40, <laughs> 40 more minutes, and they go back to the cave with the Aztec gold. Right. They, something like that happens in this movie, too, mm-hmm. where it feels like it's going to be over, but then Jack and Barbosa go on this diversion, and they wind up the next day in the same place where they were with Blackbeard <laughs> when they first got to the island or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and they even have have the sword fight between Jack and Angelica when Angelica is posing as Jack Sparrow. Yes. Uh, is clearly aping the sword fight between Jack and Will from the Ab- first movie. Yes, they, they even repeat some of the same beats. Absolutely. And one of the things that I, I felt again watching that is when you're watching, and maybe I'm biased because I do enjoy the Lord of the Rings movies, but when you're watching mm. Orlando Bloom, you can tell that he knows what he's doing. Yes. And he has some sort of prop in his hand. Mm-hmm. When I'm watching the either the the stunt double or the stand-in <laughs> or whoever for Penelope Cruz, because like I said, she was pregnant at, during filming, mm-hmm. so a lot of the medium shots and beyond she didn't do. But when you're watching those two characters, it's like, okay, this seems like something that someone and a middle-aged or older person is doing because this is like in slow motion and it's like mm-hmm. me it's either me and like my 9-year-old or me and like my dad who's in his 70s is like that's the sort of pace that it's at it reminds me of like the uh like a little uh Darth Vader and Obi-Wan sort of stuff from the first <laughs> Star Wars you know you look yes. at it now and you're like oh my god it's so slow like do something like you know, let's kick it up a little bit but i i have to wonder now i don't know the the production history or the timeline on this because i haven't cared enough to look and i'm sorry but (laughs) if they signed her before she was pregnant and you know they probably has a contract that they can't you know they can't fire her Mm -hmm. i'm gonna guess that her character was originally supposed to be like a huge part of all the action Mm -hmm. and so then that leads to what they had to do with the first 20 minutes of this movie where there's a Jack Sparrow imposter and we can have a fight scene with our female lead where you never see her face and because we can't show it to you. And it, it just feels like that whole scene feels like they had to come up with it at the last minute. Yeah. So it says Penelope Cruz was pregnant throughout production but it wasn't noticeable until September of 2010. As her baby bump grew, it caused difficulties in wardrobe, so the producers mm. enlisted the help of Cruz's younger sister. According to reports, she filmed the close-up shots while Monica doubled for her in long-distance scenes. Yeah, well. So I guess it depends on the order of when they en- ended up filming that. But yeah. um, since we're talking about her, so one of the things that I always think is kind of interesting is when you have a actor and an actress and they end up marrying their co-stars that they mm. you know meet on set or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of go back and watch the movie that they were in and, and most of the time you're like, holy shit, like you know, they weren't really acting in the scene. You yeah. can kind of tell. And I think it's interesting with Penelope Cruz watching her in the movie that I think of her the most from is vanilla sky Mm -hmm. 
with Tom Cruise and we had the whole cruise and cruise thing for a while. <laughs> and so I always watch that movie and I'm like, okay, I get it. Like she is charming in that movie and I really like her in that movie. And I, I think I like that movie a lot more than a lot of people do. And so I, I like her in that. And then I watch her in this and like we've been saying, she just could not be bothered. Like she wanted no. nothing to do with Johnny Depp. Apparently it seemed like, like, you know, mm-hmm. cause they're supposed to be exes that they say they love each other toward the end. And she yeah. says that she has a baby and he's kind of like, okay, whatever piece. And I was just <laughs> like, they just, you know, the reputations of both of them and the way that they perform together on, on screen are complete, mm-hmm. uh, completely opposite sides of what I would ex- expect them to be. Yeah. There's, there's a really uncomfortable scene of exposition. It's an expositional scene that plays out as a seduction between the two of them mm-hmm. where she's like basically dry humping him while they're giving exposition on the plot. Yeah. Well, they're, fl- and the other, yeah, they're and flipping each other around and like stuff. The, yeah. Yeah. And scrum who's like the new B squad version of Pintel and Rigetti put into one character mm-hmm. is playing, is playing the guitar while this is happening. And it's a really awkward scene. <laughs> and is. that, is. you know, that is this kind of scene that can only work if your two actors have complete, ridiculous magnetic chemistry mm-hmm. and they don't so it's you watch that seem kind of horrified <laughs> yeah yeah you watch it and you're just like oh god like this this is feels uncomfortable for the people yeah. that staged it it feels uncomfortable mm-hmm. for the actors it it felt really uncomfortable for poor stephen graham because he's sitting there you know cut yeah. do it again and he's just playing <laughs> his guitar watching them roll around it's like <laughs> So I don't know that that what that didn't that particular scene didn't work very well for me. No. And then soon, right around that time, is when we get Ian McShane for the first time, and I felt like he's he's doing he's doing Ian McShane to his most Ian McShane. He's like, I don't know. I felt like he was at least trying, and oh. I thought he was <laughs> I thought he was okay. I feel like he's he's kind of the same in most of the things that he does, right? He's that because I always think of him from Deadwood, but whenever I see him, he's just kind of got his he does the crazy eyes and he's got the sort of weathered look and he just kind of yells and screams and I'm like, oh, okay, it's Ian McShane, Ian McShane. So I feel like you disagree with me though. I just I have an ongoing internal dialogue with myself every time i see ian mcshane where i cannot tell if he's any good or not Uh, (laughs) and i think part of it you know i i i read an interview he did when his game of thrones episode aired Mm -hmm. that i think kind of clued me in to what's going on with ian mcshane i think ian mcshane is a working actor and he takes the job and he does the job and i don't think he actually gives a shit about what he's doing Mm. That's the impression that I get when I read some of the interviews with him around Game of Thrones. That's interesting because I really liked that Game of Thrones episode. Oh yeah, I really liked that episode too, and I think I think that's probably my favorite thing, favorite performance of his that I've ever seen. Mm. But I get the feeling I think oh like I I felt like I kind of understood what Ian McShane's deal was after I read that. Like you understood his process a little bit then. Yeah, that he's just you know I show up and I do the work and mm. whatever. And, you know, a lot of guys are like that, I'm sure. But I, 
I don't know. Maybe part of it is also I never really saw Deadwood. Oh, okay. So I think this movie might have been the first time I saw Ian McShane. Oh, interesting. So I was like, oh, this guy, I've been hearing about how great this guy is for years. And <laughs> mm-hmm. then he shows up all sleepy eyed and <laughs> like, I just kind of, the whole, I remember watching this the first time thinking, well, how is this better than Barbosa mm. <laughs> or Davy Jones? Sure. And it's not. Sure. Right. So, well, that's interesting because unlike our, uh, our former, both of our former, roommates mr seabrass he is a big deadwood fan mm-hmm. um but i saw him in that and thought he was good but i wasn't in love with that series as much as him in particular but uh but i thought i i mean i think that the series is good and i thought he was good in it but it was just a lot of him being like kind of an old kind of an <laughs> asshole and i was yeah. just like well he's just doing the same sort of role that's why when i thought saw him in game of thrones i was like oh okay well he's doing something different at least Mm-hmm. You know, he was he was really against type for me in that movie. Uh, yeah. One of the things that I wanted to make sure and mention to you, and I'm not sure how much of this you're familiar with, since you said that you hadn't done a ton of of research or looking into this one as much as some of the others, mm-hmm. was this is again according to IMDb, so it could be completely wrong, but it says after Walt Disney's after Walt Disney's chairman of 38 years, Dick Cook was fired. Johnny Depp talked to the LA Times and said his enthusiasm for the fourth Pirates movie had reduced after Cook left the project. There's a fissure, a crack in my enthusiasm at the moment, Depp said. It's all born in that office. One of the reasons Depp committed to Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, was because he trusted Cook, who supported him while, quote, others at the studio were less than enthusiastic about my interpretation of the character. Dick was there from the first moment he trusted me. I do remember when Dick Cook left that that was a big deal. Um, and then I think this, his successor at the studio was a guy named Sean Bailey. Mm. I think he was the head of production after Dick Cook. And um, the, I would say that Sean Bailey's tenure led directly to uh, uh, Marvel and Lucasfilm being acquired by Bob Iger. Mm. Because in, the, in that period, so you had this movie – which made a billion dollars global, but was basically seen as a franchise in death throes. Mm-hmm. Um, you had John Carter. Oh, which yes. Was you a know, tremendous failure. <laughs> and Rachel and I, at the time of this release, will have just talked about John Carter and its uh, merits or what we may have wanted to do differently with that. Yes. Movie. John Carter is one of those movies where people are trying to, there's a loud, minority of people trying to convince everyone that you missed the boat on John Carter. <laughs> that and uh, um, the I Lone Ranger too. I am not a part too. of that minority. Mm-hmm. I think John Carter is an okay movie, but I'm not going to stand for it, you know? <laughs> sure. You're not going <laughs> to... Do the kids still say that? Stan? <laughs> I'm, I'm, a John, I'm not going to be a John Carter stan. That's, uh, um, you're not going to climb up on the cross for John Carter? No. Okay. And also in that period would have been Tron Legacy, which... Mm-hmm. I think, you know, that did over 400 million global and it was a $200 million movie. And I think they were really hoping that that would be a, a long running franchise for them. I certainly hope that. Sure. I think that's a great movie, but I'm horrifically biased. <laughs> what about, um, uh, that was also the same time as, uh, around the same time as, um, The Lone Ranger. Yeah. I think The Lone Ranger would have, I think that would have been just before the Lucasfilm deal. Okay. That may have been the last straw. I, oh, I wish I, 
I wish I had access to this so I could look up the timing of all that. But yeah, Lone Ranger was another one. I don't know which of those was the biggest failure for them. I think Lone Ranger probably was. Because like I said, this movie made money. It made <laughs> oh a yeah, lot it made money. a lot of money, yeah. It made a lot of money, but it didn't... It When this one was... It felt like it was the end of the road for the franchise. It did. It does. Like, if I had to describe it, I would describe it as feeling tired. Yes. Is that um, just everyone just kind of seems to be going about three-quarter speed and about just kind of phoning some stuff in. Yeah, like, uh, I just don't. How, <laughs> like how did the, Rob? Uh, how did Rob Marshall get this job? I don't know. That is a really like, good question. Why did he want this job? <laughs> like, okay, so he made Chicago, which won Best Picture, and I think is one of the best musicals ever made. Mm-hmm. I love Chicago. That's mm-hmm. take that movie's taken a lot of shit in the last sixteen years since it came out, but. I think Chicago is about as perfect a movie musical as you can find. Mm-hmm. Whether you like the songs or not, whatever. But the movie itself and how it's all, it's great. It's a great movie. He did that. That was did, quite a, quite an introduction to him too. I mean, that was his yeah. first movie. And uh, after that, he did Memoirs of a Geisha for mm-hmm. Spielberg, mm-hmm. which is a forgettable movie, but not a bad movie. Sure. It is. It's, it's, a, it's like a prestige film. You know, yes. To where at least that's what the attempt was. Yeah. And then he did Nine, which was another <laughs> musical right. that I don't think anybody saw. No. <laughs> I remember that because I remember when Chicago had all of this attention around it and then Nine was coming out and it's like, holy shit, it's going to be the guy that did Nine and it's going to be Daniel Day-Lewis and mm-hmm. Marion Cotillard. And I was like, whoa, this is going to be huge just like Chicago was. And then yeah. nobody said anything about it. No, I got it. It died. It died in the in basically the the press. All the members of the press that saw it long lead before it released killed it because mm-hmm. like even the prestige, it wasn't going to get nominated for any awards because it was it was just a bad movie. Apparently, I, I never saw it. But because of nine, we have Penelope Cruz in this movie, right. and we have the the delightful and completely inexplicable cameo from Dame Judi Dench. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but so I don't know how you get to I don't know how you get to On Stranger Tides. Yeah, it doesn't that. make it doesn't make any sense. You go Chicago Memoirs of a Geisha nine, and then Pirates of the Caribbean, like a two hundred million dollar project. Like, after so doing I don't those know three movies, if, if he was looking to branch out. And try something big, and you know he had he had friends at Disney because of Chicago, mm-hmm. or what? But I don't think when this was announced that he was doing this, I don't think there was a, a single person alive who said, "Oh, that's a great choice." <laughs> <laughs> well, and it didn't necessarily hurt him that much because he did Into the Woods after this, yes. and that was another pretty bit. I mean, for a musical to be. 500 or 50 million dollars that's a pretty big budget for a musical you know and to have the movie starring mm-hmm. uh the people that it starred with you know the laundry list of stars that were in into yeah, the woods yeah it did okay and I it thought did that fine. was a pretty bad movie too though but <laughs> i wouldn't say that i loved it but it did do 212 million so I, into the woods is one of those movies where it almost all takes place outside and everyone watching it knows that every shot is a soundstage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just an ugly movie to me. Well, I kind the, of like 
Pirates of the Caribbean 4. <laughs> I was going to say one of the things that is worrisome is his next film, which comes out this December, which, you know, why do movies come out in December? They're either supposed to be huge right. crowd pleasers or uh, award bait. But he's the, the man in charge of the Mary Poppins reboot. Oh, that's right. With Emily Blunt and Meryl Streep. And I'll tell you, you know, I was never a big fan of Mary Poppins. I mean, I, as a Disney person, I, of course, appreciate, I know, I appreciate <laughs> its, its spot in the Pantheon and there's a lot I like about it, but I don't love it. But when they showed that first teaser for that during the Oscars, God mm-hmm. damn it, if I didn't get chills up my spine mm, <laughs> for the new one. Well, I think that the cast is right. Like, I think Emily Blunt is good in just about anything that she does. Oh, yeah. And you know, I don't know how Lin-Manuel Miranda fits into <laughs> the Mary Poppins world, mm-hmm. but whatever. If you're going to make a musical, you might as well hire Lin-Manuel Miranda to be in it. Yeah. Well, and, and I then, love the casting of the grown-ups, the the grown-up versions of the kids. It's Emily Mortimer and mm-hmm. Ben Whishaw. <laughs> Whishaw, that's right. Ben Whishaw. Yes. Yeah, Whishaw. So those are good. <laughs> I I am also uh, a little bit concerned, and we'll segue our way back into on Stranger Ties with this. Is that his <laughs> announced movie after Mary Poppins is the remake of The Little Mermaid? Oh, yeah, with a little half. CGI half live action uh, action. So let's talk about the mermaids in this scene because up until the mermaids, I was like, well, this isn't that bad. Like I'm okay. And I didn't see until this morning that you had mentioned something fairly similar on Twitter <laughs> yeah. where you had said basically that it was a little better than you had recalled, but you were dreading the, the infamous CGI mermaid sequence. Yes. And I saw that. And, oh man, I, I watched it and was like, okay, we have, we have this sort of, um, foreboding tale of how dangerous these mermaids are and about how all mm-hmm. oh, these guys are goners and all this kind of stuff. And, but we need a mermaid. We need to catch it because we need one of the tears and we need all this blah, 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 blah. We all, we need this MacGuffin stuff. And yeah. we're like, okay. And we have the girl who is singing and we have the, you know, is it scrum? The do the yes. kind of doofy guy that falls for her. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, okay, this is working. Oh, like I'm okay with this. This is kind of working. You know, he's, she's obviously seducing him and everyone else is just kind of standing around for no apparent reason. And then we had the, the group of them that's kind of encircling the little lifeboat. And I'm like, all right, I'm totally fine with this so far. And then the actual action starts, and I'm like, wait, so these mermaids are so deadly, but all they do is kind of, like, pull them and, like, <laughs> fling themselves like flying fish? Yeah. Like, that's all that they do? <laughs> and I was like, this doesn't make any sense to me at all. Why don't they just shoot them? Like, how like how dangerous can they be? And then they did some things that made sense, like, you know, breaking breaking the actual lifeboat and and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff but i was like this is this part is really rough is what i put in the my notes and then to have seen you commenting about the dreaded uh mermaid <laughs> the dreaded mermaid scene then i was like oh okay so it's not just me that kind of had a problem with that no i think the idea is a good idea uh-huh the idea of of putting mermaids in this fantasy world and it turns out that they're badass. Mm-hmm. Like you don't want to fuck with the mermaids. 
like to kind of to turn the idea of a mermaid on its head. But they went about it completely wrong Mm -hmm. because they tell you up front that mermaids are not to be trifled with. Mm -hmm. So, so then that creates this kind of like, that creates a picture in your head of what it's going to be. And it's not going to live up because it's a PG-13 movie. It's not going to live up to whatever you're picturing the horrific mermaids are like. Yes. So number one, if you're going to do this, you have to not give any hint that mermaids are actually, you know, vampires of the sea. Because <laughs> right. then, when she first buried I'm like, she's a vampire. Yeah. Like, it was Twilight so, in the Water is what it felt like. Yes. <laughs> so you have to – you can't play your hand before you get to the scene. You have – it can't be at night. It has to be at daytime in full, you know, so you can see everything with bright shining colors and beautiful mermaids, mm-hmm. you know, sunning themselves in a lagoon. Mm-hmm. That's how you do this scene. Well, you give like an idyllic, beautiful picture of the mermaid that is then completely upended by what they do. Not holy shit, the mermaids are going to fuck you up. And then that, and then, you know, it, it, it doesn't work the way they did it. Well, and, and we just got out of a, a theme where Rachel and I tried to rewrite movies and make them work. Uh-huh. And I thought that this was so simple and was such a missed opportunity. So we have the scene that I mentioned where um, Jeffrey Rush is able to convince the entire crew to go along with him like right away. Right. Um, he's. It's when he's eating his little snack and then they're kind of like, hey, what are we doing? And he's like, oh, we're doing (laughs) blank. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're doing blank. And they're like, okay. And we have the one guy that sort of abandons ship, right? Mm -hmm. I don't understand why you don't – and I get that it's different geography. But I don't understand why you don't have – a small little sequence where that where it follows that guy who jumps off of the ship mm-hmm. and then you just see him either looking like he's going to be rescued by this mermaid mm. or he gets onto some sort of piece of driftwood or some sort of boat or something uh-huh. and then it seems like she's going to be all nice and whatever and then she either slightly off screen or something basically kills mm-hmm. the guy and then when they send off when Blackbeard sends off this boat full of people. They, they could have a questioning like, what are you doing? And yeah. he could just say, well, there's mermaids in this part of the ocean or whatever. And then just uh-huh. have a little smirk. And then you don't have to go through all the exposition. You right. already know that they're sort of dangerous and you can just have them sort of tear apart these people. Yeah. And that's already been planted then. And it's so, like, that's so simple. Like, that's not a, that's not like an ingenious idea. Like, that's a simple, easy idea. Right. And it's well, like, and- why don't you just, <laughs> why don't you just set them up and then pay them off? Yeah. Uh. Like, everything about it, even like, I think it's the, the least successful scene in the movie from a technical standpoint, too, because I don't think that the different, the different shoots, like the, the the different setups and the different effects departments that all have to work. I don't think they really gel in that scene. No. Because you've got you've got the CGI shoreline where the lighthouse is on, mm-hmm. and then you've got the boat just like out in the middle of the water with a spotlight on it, so that they can cut to you know what what fucking basically looks like a water tank in somebody's backyard. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's absolutely a water tank somewhere, you can, yeah. <laughs> you can see the woman, you can see the mermaid standing up 
when she when she um comes like tries to come up into the boat a little bit when oh, she's yeah. singing, uh-huh. you can actually see her standing up. Uh-huh. <laughs> um well, one so of the things also that I thought was strange is it's like, okay, well, so you have the first mermaid and then she just kind of disappears unless in all of the chaos I missed what happened to her. Right. And then you have the, a completely different one that gets kidnapped. Yeah. And it's like, well, what is the point of having two different ones? Why don't you just yeah. have the one and then that's your character that you're following the rest of the time? Why have yeah. the two? And what are they even like, you know, when the mermaids are like, half ashore what are they even throwing at oh yeah <laughs> where they're like, like what are they doing they're doing some like super spider-man type shit to where they're yeah. like webbing them and pulling them in with like some sort of rope and i'm like what is this I, okay yeah, between that and blackbeard's you know uh supernatural power being that he can make scary ropes come and get you it's like what <laughs> he can make ropes and he can also have uh flamethrowers that he'll decide to use one time yes at the front of his ship it's like okay like, so why this is obviously setting something up so let's use this again no yeah no okay i just couldn't believe that like his superpower is well he points this giant sword and some ropes like string you up <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but he's got the mat. He can like swirl it around so it turns quick, though. Yes. And I was just like, well, the ship has like no point. And I'm sitting there thinking, watching this one going, Jesus, is there any ship that's not like a famous ship in this fucking world? Like everyone is, (laughs) every ship is notorious for something. (laughs) And then, you know, we have the little bit, and this is just because I'm thinking of the ships. We have the ship in the bottle bit. And we have the very clear mm-hmm. setup at the end of the, well, what, how do we get the ship in the bottle out or a ship out of the mm-hmm. bottle and all this? And I'm like, well, okay, here's the fifth movie, you know? And, it's and like, honestly, I can't even remember if that even comes into play in the fifth movie, but it's one, of, <laughs> it's one of those where I can just imagine myself being in the theater going, all right, like you can just make a fifth one. You don't have to give me this. Right. Exactly. You know? And I don't know. I don't know who that's for because I don't like I I doubt if I were to go and and talk to my daughter and say, oh, did you know that there's a fifth one? She's not going to she's not going to think, oh, yeah, because the, there was the ship in the bottle. She's not yeah. going to give a shit. There's mm-hmm. a fifth one. Oh, really? OK, cool. Yeah. You know? Did she like this one? Uh, well, you know, that's funny because since I fell asleep during it, she said that it was she said she liked the other ones better. Yeah. But she thought it was OK. And I think that, you know, she can buy into, you know, since she's nine, she can sort of mm-hmm. buy into the sort of clean um, sword and, and sort of somewhat magical type stuff. Mm-hmm, yeah. And and I think that she fits in well with the sort of demographic they're aiming at for this movie. Because we just got done, as a recording, we just got done um, seeing Black Panther yesterday. Nice. And so she was like, I could tell why that was PG-13. And I said, why? And she goes, well, there was a lot of fighting. And then they were saying the S word a lot of, a lot of times. <laughs> and I said, oh, I, I love the fact that you're nine and you're still saying the S word instead of <laughs> just saying what the word is, because that's about a year or two away, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, oh, OK. And there was, you know, you can notice in watching the two movies is like, all right, well, that one did have a little bit more aggressive fighting. And this one is a little bit more like middle-aged and older men sort of, sort of fighting. (laughs) 
<laughs> this one is the end of Star Trek Generations version of the um, sword fighting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is a really good reference. With it, you got Malcolm McDowell and William Shatner and Patrick Stewart out there. Oh, and they're like theater fighting. They're theater actor punching where they're doing the punch and then it's the oh kind yeah. of fight reaction. Hey, you know, all all three of those guys are still alive as of this recording. I know, isn't that crazy? That was what uh, twenty four years ago. Twenty four years ago, <laughs> Jesus, and they all looked old then. Yep. You know, that's like why I, I love Patrick Stewart, but seeing him even in Logan, I was like, oh Jesus! I kind of just want him to go and retire. Like I'm, he's just looking so old. That was <sighs> Logan. Logan just destroyed me, man. Really? I love that movie, but I don't know if I could ever watch it again. See, I didn't, it see, just, I, I didn't see it in theater, and I kind of didn't have, like, I enjoyed the movie, but I didn't have as kind of a, a strong of a reaction as I think I anticipated that I was going to have. I Oh, we didn't see it in the theater either, okay. but there was something about it. I just felt, I, I felt bad for like a week after mm. that movie. That movie really, really took something out of me. Interesting. <laughs> hmm. And I think a big, and why well, I think a big part of that is just to see Patrick Stewart like that was heartbreaking. Oh yeah, that that was the hardest part for me. And it was it was strange, even though I've seen him in other things. It was strange to hear him swearing because we've yes. been watching we've been watching so much Next Generation, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh my god, like he's <laughs> saying all these words to where I <clears throat> definitely cannot show this to the little one yet. Like that's you know. That's quite a that's quite a task for an actor who's been playing that part for almost twenty years, and we he was an old man when he started, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and to see him have be asked to play that at his age, to play that part that way, it's for a character that was you know in a goofy comic book movie, and now we're gonna do this super serious version that was. Lived up to everything. Well, now we're on a total tangent, but man, <laughs> that well, movie fucked me up, man. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that is not really found in that movie and what is found in this one is the idea of religion. And I don't, is it Sam Claflin? He's the religious character. I put down the religious character is such a non entity. Yes. That it's unbelievable to me because he is like, if you said, hey, give me a generic performance from a generic white guy, (laughs) that would be this guy in this in this performance. Yes. Because it was so down the middle and so straight and so plain. And he's, you know, he's capable of a little more. He's he's pretty likable in the Hunger Games movies. Oh, what is he in the Hunger Games? He's oh, what the fuck is his name? He's yeah. in the second one where he's like the cocky guy, Finnick Odair. Be, yes. Okay. And then he turns out to be, you know, to be a total sweetheart. <laughs> hmm. He's very likable in those movies. That's interesting. But in this, I don't he's remember just a zero. Hmm. Yeah, he's completely forgettable. I mean, he's just he. Well, he has nothing to do either, so it's not yeah. like it's completely on him. I just don't even know, like, did they, did they, I, I'm assuming that those characters in the movie, just so that they could put younger people in the marketing. I guess, because, you know, along with that, we have the Serena character, the the other mermaid. Yeah. That, <laughs> why they didn't just have the original mermaid, like I said, doesn't make sense to me. 
but she is awful. I, I thought she was really well, poor. She joins the ranks of Rosie Whittington Huntley, I think is her name, as as models who were hired to be in bad sequels and established mm. franchises that you never heard from again. Yeah. Because she was, she was the one in Transformers Dark of the Moon who oh. took over for Megan Fox. <laughs> well, what's funny is that they considered Megan Fox to be this Serena role. Well, maybe <laughs> she would have had a little personality going by at least the first Transformers movie. Well, at least you could have been like, oh, it's somebody that I know. Yeah, exactly. And so it's somebody that I give a shit about, maybe. Instead, yeah. it's like, I don't know who this girl is. She's not giving a very good performance. She's not asked to do anything but kind of, like, flop around, like, splash style. And yeah. I was like, what is, what's going on here? Well, I mean, I assume those characters were in the movie even more at some point. They so, had to have been. At some point, there's a two, it, somewhere there exists a two hour and 45 minute version of this movie with even more of those terrible characters. Yeah. In it. <laughs> and it was, it was definitely when the two of them and we have the whole tier and we have like this, this weird list of things that needs to happen. Yeah. And this is where I wrote down, I was like pretty checked out. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then I was just like, uh, you know, the pretty blah third act and a pretty blah movie, really. And then one of the things that I thought was weird was, you know, we have, I think Pirates of the Caribbean is is pretty well known for the fact that it has these kind of coincidental fight scenes, uh-huh. right? Where it's like, oh, this happens to go here and I'm going to use this to slide across the room or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. And then we have this sequence where it's Penelope Cruz and Johnny Depp and Scrum and and they're just like throwing shit in the air back and forth and they're sort of fighting and there's the chalice and there's the tear and there's a sword. And I was like, what is this? It's like, this cannot be in the screenplay. Like this has to no. be something to where Rob Marshall was like, yeah, go ahead, Johnny. If I can do it, I don't give a shit. Yeah. I'm like going to go over and count my money. I don't care. Cause I just didn't get that at all. I was like, what, what is, what actually are they doing right here? I have this movie on. Right, whenever we record, I put the movie on that we're watching in the background with the subtitles on, just to you know, in case it spurs anything else. So I have this movie on, and it's about twenty minutes past the mermaid scene. I don't remember any of the things I'm looking at, and I just watched this less than twenty four hours ago. <laughs> that is not great. <laughs> and I was not as I was not half awake. I was fully awake for all of this. That's funny because, you know, once they got back into, like, the jungle-type stuff, I was like, oh, okay, are we going to bring back some jungle-type shit? Because yeah. I was I was kind of harping on it at the time, but by the time they got there in this movie, I was like, oh, Jesus, bring me back that jungle shit from the second yeah. movie. <laughs> you know, I was like, at the time, I was like, I don't know if I really loved this part that much, and then now I'm like, oh, just bring me back that. Yeah. The, I think the scene that is the nail in the coffin for me is where suddenly, for no reason, I, I, I was thinking about, I'm like, why is this scene in the movie? The scene where Jack ends up having to play Russian roulette. Oh, exactly what I had written down. Yes. To not jump, because he doesn't want <laughs> to jump fuck? into the water. I'm like, what is this scene? Yeah. Like, well, why is they, this in the movie? They had just said, and it's so weird, like, the screenplay is so, like, this seems like such a, you know what, we're not going to follow the screenplay. Because yeah. they had just said that they didn't have time to, like, walk all the way around. Uh-huh. And so then 
Jack wasn't going to be allowed to go off because he might not come back, and they didn't want <laughs> Angelica to do it for whatever reason. Because she was pregnant. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And so they said, okay, well, I'm going to kill her if you don't jump. And they didn't have time for him to go around, but yet we can do this like, hey, load 45 pistols up and only fill yeah. 20 of them. And I'm like, what the <laughs> hell? He couldn't have just done like two out of three? Like, it had to be six and only four of them or two of them or whatever it was. Or I know. And, uh, <laughs> and then we're going through this whole like nonsense about, oh, Johnny shoots one up in the air and it's got it, uh, it's actually loaded. And I was like, what the hell is this? Like, what are we doing? <laughs> Yeah. And that's, that's when the voodoo doll gets thrown away and they're like, well, oh, we're not going to use this right. anymore. So, <laughs> oh man. Yeah. We were right. Definitely on the same page about that. Like I just, after that scene, I'm just like, why can this please be over now? But no, it has like 50 <laughs> minutes after that. Well, that's also when, once we get into that third act and we get into the caves or the fountain of youth is when we uh, have the sort of real villain, which is the belief of God. Is when we have, well, the Spanish are uh, religious, and so they're just going to burn everything down because that's yeah. what religious folks do. Wow. <laughs> like, okay. Like, well, this shouldn't be here in this world where we have mermaids and all this other shit, and so yeah. we're just going to burn this place to the ground. And like, well, Fuck you know, it. you know, it's like half underwater. What do you mean you're going to like destroy yeah. it and burn it? Like, what <laughs> <laughs> like what are you doing and they just basically moved like one big pillar of rocks and they're like yep destroyed <laughs> nailed it <laughs> i was like okay well <laughs> you know what there's oh, a scene after the russian roulette that might be an even worse scene what's that and i i remember it 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 sticked out. It's a scene that I remember just because it's the it's the one scene from this movie that has an overt reference to the theme park ride. Mm, okay. Which is when they're on the boat that's like hanging off the cliff, and they find Ponce de Leon's skeleton laying in the bed. Oh yes. And he's got a magnifying glass. That's like that's <laughs> taken right out of the ride where you go past all these dead pirates and they're and all the treasure that they don't get to spend now because they're dead and there's a a skeleton in the bed with a magnifying glass and as you float by it, the skull, you know, it's perfectly positioned so that everybody in the boat sees the skull get really big when you float by it. Okay. But that scene where Jack and Barbosa run into each other uh, and then end up spending the whole movie together after that is so poorly staged and it's so incompetent. Like... <laughs> The boat is is presumably hanging on a cliff, and when the scene starts, Barbosa's sitting down on the right side of the frame, and Jack is on the left side. Mm -hmm. And somehow, even while they're both on on the, the the those sides of the frame, the boat starts listing to the right. It's like, well, Barbosa was already there. Like <laughs> Barbosa was already sitting there. So he should have tipped the boat over by himself. And like none of the movements that they are making in that scene make any sense for for how the boat is allegedly tipping over. Mm. It's just so incompetent. It's just like, ah, we'll just make it work in editing. But oh. they didn't. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like attention to, te to detail might not be something that Rob Marshall was that concerned with. Well, no, no, because, yeah. 
I mean, you just get the sense. It's like, well, we got to fucking make this thing now. Let's just churn another one out, fellas. Because that's what, I mean, that's what it feels like, is they're just yeah. churning another one. And it's, you know, it's a shame because the reason this franchise exists is because Gore Verbinski obviously threw himself into those first three movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was presented with an impossible task with the first movie. Let's make, let's revive the pirate movie, a genre that killed a studio with Cutthroat Island in the nineties. And let's do it with Johnny Depp playing, playing Keith Richards by way of Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> and let's base it on a theme park ride. Mm-hmm. And he did it. <laughs> it's crazy. And then, and so, and because he did it, and I'm sure I've said that they let him do uh, apparently whatever the hell he wanted on the second and third one, which mm-hmm. is why I love those movies. It's like, let's do, let's do this ridiculous idea that'll never work and then do five other ridiculous ideas that'll never work on top of it. Well, it was almost like a, uh, let's just throw so much stuff at the screen to where you, if one thing doesn't work, nobody can pay attention to it. Well, yeah. You know? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. You could say that about those movies. Too, yes. It's like, well, <laughs> we'll just throw a shitload of stuff, and if something doesn't work, that's fine, because look over here. This yeah. this one will probably work. So. This movie, like, you know, this movie works for about 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. The first 20 minutes, when it's all about Jack Sparrow, and he has some genuinely funny lines in the beginning of this movie. Mm-hmm. I found myself laughing out loud. I was like, oh, I didn't expect this. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember this being such a zero of a movie, and I was like, oh, I'm actually laughing. But, you know, Keith Richards shows up for no, there's no oh, yeah, he's in logical there for... reason for Keith Richards <laughs> to show up. I guess he's like, I guess you're supposed to glean that Keith Richards is just like Stellan Skarsgård in the second movie, where he's kind of supernatural and can just kind of show up and disappear whenever. Because uh-huh. <laughs> like in that second movie, like Stellan Skarsgård just shows up below decks with, with Johnny Depp in like the first 20 minutes to basically give the exposition needed to get the movie rolling and then he disappears. <laughs> yeah. Cause he's here to shoot a British officer and then that's it. That's all he does. Yeah. That is odd, isn't it? Yeah. That whole, and then like the geography of that, of that scene, cause that leads to the Penelope Cruz thing. And then they go through a hole in the floor into water and then they cut to the water and they're like way like, I, 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 this movie has no concern for geography. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I'm saying it doesn't matter that it, it's uh, which ship it is that finds the mermaid. It's like if you're going to just be shitty crazy and not care about where anything is mm-hmm. or whatever anything is, like then set the mermaids up and then pay them off because yeah. otherwise it doesn't make it doesn't work at all. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So yeah, so I I don't know. I think that we are pretty much on the same page about this yes. movie being <laughs> not exactly the uh, the most ambitious or the most successful in the franchise. Is there anything that no. we haven't mentioned that you wanted to uh, bring up before we wrap this baby up? I just do want to say, because this is the thing I always talk about, that the one part of the music that does work is um, the new theme for Angelica, which is performed by the guitar duo Rodrigo y Gabriela. Mm. So when Scrum is playing the guitar, it's it's this group, it's this duo, Rodrigo and Gabriela, that were called in as guest artists by Hans Zimmer. And that piece of music works. 
Okay. It's the, it, mm-hmm. That piece of music is very good. It doesn't sound like anything else in the Pirates franchise. You know, it's it's Spanish guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's great. The theme for Blackbeard is awful. It sounds like <laughs> he basically rearranged the notes from the Davy Jones theme and then played it slower. Uh, I think it's just as sleepy as Ian McShane's performance. Hmm. And then the rest of the music in this, like I said, it's, it's mostly pumped up, percussive, overproduced versions of the already percussive, overproduced themes from the first movie, which didn't work. Um, the second and third movie are two of my favorite film scores ever, the third one in particular. So... Yeah, it's just weird. It's it. That's how Hans Zimmer is, though, because it's he's just kind of like he's called in at the last minute on a lot of things. He brings in a lot of collaborators, and they do a lot of things that don't work. They keep temp music in a lot of movies. It's you know sometimes you get genius stuff, and other times you get you know total crap. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and one of those that a lot of people don't enjoy, but you are even a more ardent defender than I've been prepared is the Amazing Spider-Man 2 uh, score. Yes. Well, that's a score... Okay, so I had no intention of seeing that movie in the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't. So but I, list, and I, so I listened to the score when it came out. I'm like, this is a, an abomination. <laughs> like, <laughs> this makes no sense at all. And then I saw the movie and it's the one thing in the movie that works like like works really well i don't know how that score that very strange score works for that very strange convoluted unfinished movie mm-hmm. <laughs> but that that music that he wrote for electro that has some dubstep in it i mean it shouldn't i just it's a score written by Hans Zimmer and Junkie XL and Mike Einzinger of Incubus and Pharrell Williams, and it's got dubstep in it, mm-hmm. and it shouldn't work. It's got, and that, <laughs> yeah, it's got dubstep, and then it's got like some some like Looney Tunes sounding. Bits. Yeah, oh yeah, like the the clarinet motif. Yes, the clarinet that turns into the dubstep, yep. uh-huh. and you watch the movie, and it completely works. Mm. It's the one thing in the movie that works. That the Times Square scene is maybe my favorite scene in any superhero movie that's not directed by Christopher Nolan. Sure, yeah, that, that <laughs> I do like that. That scene is the only thing that I think I like about Amazing Spider-Man Two. The more I think about it, yeah, I think you know uh, Jamie Fox took a big he took a he took a big shot with that movie and it didn't work for most people but it works for me uh-huh. i think i i don't really like jamie fox that much but i i whatever he's doing in amazing spider-man 2 i enjoyed well, there you go <laughs> there you go it's always good to have you go out on a limit about something you know hey you know <laughs> drive the conversation that's what you're supposed to do that's what your that's what your columns are supposed to do too supposed to do supposed to i mean do. they do it they do every week <laughs> they do controversial <laughs> oh Contro- yeah sean controversial stanglin that's what that's they, call, what they you. call me <laughs> all right so wrapping us up if you have any comments suggestions or movies that you'd like to hear us talk about you can email us at plainlabelpodcast at gmail.com you can follow us under the handle at plain label pod where you can follow me i'm at eric williams 79 we also have a facebook page and an instagram account for the show just search for plain label podcast and you'll find us over there if you wanted to help us out a little bit you could check out our show notes and there you're going to find a link to our amazon wish list our amazon shopping link where we get a small percentage of whatever you buy and our audible link where again you can get something for free 
just by signing up. So I do want to thank Sean once again for coming on and talking about pirates, even though it's uh, maybe not as successful as some of the earlier some of the earlier ones. If people wanted to hear more from you or maybe read some of those scintillating columns, where could they do that? <laughs> uh, look for me on Twitter at Sean Stangland DH, and go to DailyHerald.com and search Sean Stangland, and you'll find under my byline everything I've ever written for the fine newspaper. There you go. The fine and successful newspaper, along with the successful newspaper industry. That's so, right. thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week with our final episode about the Pirates series, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. My heart is pierced by Cupid I just stain on glittering gold There is nothing can console me but my Johnny Sailor Bone.